For months, New York Congressman Max Rose was among a band of centrist Democrats who resisted the calls for impeachment. But then, with the revelations about President Trump's Ukraine dealings, Rose changed his mind and openly endorsed a full-fledged impeachment inquiry. It was a risky move given that Rose represents the only Trump-friendly bastion in New York City, Staten Island, long a Republican stronghold, until Rose, an Afghan war veteran, knocked off a GOP incumbent last year. What prompted Rose's switch on impeachment, and where does he stand now? We'll talk to the congressman, and we'll talk to Jack Goldsmith, a former top Justice Department official under President George W. Bush, about the legal and constitutional issues surrounding the impeachment debate on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Max Rose is a really interesting guy to watch as the impeachment debate unfolds. He was, you know, clearly uh, resisting strongly the demands and calls for impeachment by every other Democrat in New York City and um, throughout the country. And I think how he crafts his decision what impeachment articles he supports i think are going to be a good yardstick of where moderate democrats are going to end up in this yeah he wrote an op-ed piece you know not that long ago saying that he was pretty much dead set against impeachment um that uh congress needs to focus on the issues that the american people care about and After the Ukraine revelations, um, a red line was crossed for him, and he totally changed his mind. He's all in on the impeachment inquiry. He has not committed to voting to impeach the president, but I think uh, he's going in that that direction. But look, this was a, I think, a turning point week in in this uh, inquiry with the testimony of of Bill Taylor, the uh, charge in Ukraine. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think people have not fully grasped just how significant that testimony was. It may Uh, not be Alexander Butterfield revealing (laughs) the uh, the Watergate tapes, but I think it's closer to John Dean saying there's a cancer on the presidency. uh, Yeah, I mean, two highlights uh, that uh, just we can't emphasize enough of what Bill Taylor said. Taylor was a, uh, you know, He's a West Point grad, a uh, a career diplomat. An infantry um, officer in, the, in, in, Vietnam, in Vietnam, 101st Airborne. Doesn't at all fit. What was the uh, statement that the White House press office put out about a radical unelected bureaucrats? Uh, you look at Taylor's resume and uh, the idea that he's some radical plotting uh, against uh, the sitting president By the way, doesn't st- hold st- up. Steve uh, Bannon, who, who's now launched a radio show to yeah. defend Trump, yeah. you know, mocked the White House uh, for, for those kinds of comments, saying that's just not a serious approach to what is a serious problem that they really have to fight back uh, intelligently. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to hear what uh, Bannon's strategy yeah. would be uh, on this uh, bomb thrower that he was. But the two points I want to emphasize is uh, from Taylor's testimony is his conversation with Gordon Sondland, in which he says that Sondland tells him that it would be a mistake uh, to tell that he had made a mistake telling Ukrainian officials to whom he spoke that a White House meeting with Zelensky was dependent on a public announcement of investigations of the Bidens and supposed 2016 interference by Ukrainians in the in the election to help Hillary Clinton. In fact, Sondland told Taylor, according to Taylor, Everything was dependent on such an announcement, including military aid to fight Russian aggressions that Trump wanted to put Zelensky 
in a public box by forcing him to make a public statement along those lines. Uh, that sounds, you know, quite Trumpian. And, and then, then just, just before yeah. we get to the next point, just a yeah. reminder uh, on this. Um, we now know that he didn't just say this to Bill Taylor. You know, he also said it to Senator Ron Johnson, right. um, who had been on that trip to Ukraine and uh, met with Zelensky. So he has said this uh, on two occasions. And just, you know, to underscore that, his account of his September 7th conversation with Tim Morrison. Tim Morrison takes over the Eurasian desk at the NSC after Fiona Hill leaves. And Morrison tells... Taylor about a conversation he just had with Sondland in and saying he had a sinking feeling after talking to Sondland. According to Morrison, Trump had told Sondland that he wasn't asking for a quid pro quo with Zelensky, but Trump insisted that Zelensky go to a microphone and say he is opening up investigations of Biden and the 2016 election and that Zelensky needed to do that himself. So that sort of sounds like exactly the quid pro quo that they are publicly denying ever took place. Of course, we already had Mulvaney basically confirming it in his press conference last week. But what's interesting to me is Sondland... There's a clear conflict between Sondland's testimony and Taylor's testimony because Sondland insisted when he testified last week that he was not aware of any quid pro quo and he would not be party to such a deal. And here's uh, Taylor saying, hey, Sondland was not only party to it, he told him yeah. about it and he told him that that he was acting under orders from President Trump. Although Sondland clearly seems to be playing some kind of legal game here with his lawyer, who we know, uh, Bob Luskin, um, because Sondland has also said, I guess through Luskin, that when he was ordered, essentially told uh, by Trump, there's no quid pro quo, and then he relayed that back to Taylor. Sondland has made it public uh, that, well, he didn't know whether Trump was telling the truth or not. Right. He was just... Uh, he's you know. trying to walk a fine line. So he's trying to walk... But, but look, one thing I want to say is, yeah. is one of the things that's really important about Taylor, it's not just the evidence um, that he is laying out of a quid pro quo. It's also the kind of witness that he will be, assuming he testifies publicly, and I think he will. His testimony, 15 pages, it took him 40 minutes right. to read it, very vivid, lots of detail, Scenes, anecdotes, the kind of testimony that for a uh, publicly televised uh, public hearing can can start to have real impact with the American people. And, you know, there are a couple of things um, in particular that stood out. One was that very powerful scene of him when he goes, travels in Ukraine to that war damaged bridge, and he's looking across to the other side and he sees the Russian backed Ukrainian uh, soldiers. The point that he's making is that this is a foreign policy scandal, as well as a kind of a more traditional corruption scandal, but that that has real-world consequences, life-and-death consequences, as our friend and uh, skullduggery guest Peter Baker has pointed out, and real geopolitical consequences. And then one other just example of the sort of vividness of his testimony, and that is where he's recounting a um, national security uh, situation room meeting, a teleconference meeting, um, and there's a, some OMB official who says during uh, during this meeting, the military aid has just been withheld. We don't know why. And it's kind of in real time, right. the sort of shock that this has happened. Right. So it's that kind of... Uh, <laughs> it's cinematic. Yeah, I'd love exactly. to see that scene in the it, movie. Exactly. Like, what? Why? Yeah. Wait, we're holding up right. military aid? Right. Um, so look, um, the uh, other development that uh, got a lot of headlines this week was the sort of Republican stunt in which they charge into the skiff where these uh, closed-door depositions are taking place uh, uh, with their cell phones, by the way delaying the uh, uh, testimony of a 
Defense Department official for five hours so the uh, room could be cleared of congressmen who Republican congressmen who are not members of the committees doing the investigation. Clearly, uh, this was an effort to distract from the substance of the testimony. Uh, we here on Skullduggery are all for public hearings. We've been demanding them for weeks and weeks, but what the Republicans are doing seems to be making a mockery of what I think is a serious case to open the process up. I think the Democrats are starting to get the message. The uh, suggestions now are we may they may move into the public hearing phase by mid-November. I don't know if that gives them time to finish up before Thanksgiving, which means we go past the Thanksgiving holidays for an actual vote. Yeah, I think it's uh, highly unlikely that they're going to finish that up by then. There's still a lot of witnesses um, yeah. that they need to depose. I mean, they'll be deposing more witnesses this week and, and, and next week. So this is going to take some time. But what the Republicans this, did this week, which, by the way, some people are referring to the second Brooks Brothers riot, <laughs> which is a reference to what happened uh, in 2000. The, when... the, uh, the recount in Florida <laughs> in 2000 in which Roger Stone, who, by the way, is going on trial in a week and a half. I think November 5th is the opening day for the uh, Roger Stone trial. Roger Stone helped organize this riot of Republican lobbyists who like barged into the Miami uh, the Board of Elections uh, to uh, stop the recount that was going on. <laughs> I think this gives us a uh, kind of a foreshadowing of what the Republican strategy is going to be going forward because it's hard to make a substantive case defending Trump because the evidence, you know, increasingly is so clear. But what they are going to do is try to turn this whole process into a circus. And this plays right into Trump's hands. This is, you know, he is a reality TV phenomenon who kind of knows how to do this. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he's, you know, coordinating some of this with his Republican allies on the Hill. And I think you're going to see this throughout the process, including when it gets to the Senate trial phase. Our colleague John Ward had a story this week that talks precisely about that strategy and, among other things, has Republicans speculating the kinds of things that the Trump legal team might do would be to call, say, Joe Biden as a witness. Uh, now, they may not be able to do that, but remember, the rules get made up along the way. Well, so, the, the, the guy to watch there, of course, is Chief Justice Roberts, who right. will be presiding over the trial. And, you know, how far will he let such a circus strategy go for the defense? Well, it's unclear um, how much power well, he Well, that, really that's the real clash, because Mitch McConnell can rewrite the rules to overrule Roberts. Exactly. But that sets up a, uh, a you know, a politically dicey conflict for and also, McConnell. Yes. And they, right, does he want to go up against the chief justice? How, then it looks like he's totally serving as the president's uh, and, man. And I'm not sure McConnell is going to go there at this point. Yeah, look, He I does mean, seem are, to be distancing himself already, a bit. Right. There are already right. some smoke signals from McConnell distancing himself a bit from Trump. McConnell's up for re-election. There are a whole bunch of Republicans and moderate Republicans who are up for re-elections in states that Trump did not win. So this is complicated for yeah. him. I don't think McConnell liked that Moscow Mitch hashtag that was all over Twitter for a while. Yeah. I mean, he will never admit it, but I think that's the kind of thing that gets under his skin. Well, look, there's a lot to talk about. Let's get right to our guests. Let's go through it. We are now joined by Congressman Max Rhodes of Staten Island and, and Brooklyn. Congressman, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan. Uh, big well, fan I, of both I, of you guys. I got to say, so you are a Skullduggery listener. Absolutely. Subscriber and all. All right. Well, there'll be lots for you and your constituents to listen to after Good. this uh, podcast. Um, all right. Let's uh, go to the uh, topic du jour, impeachment you made. Shocking that you begin with that. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. You know, we like to take these uh, sort really of left off field, the radar issues. Shoes and put them front and center. All right, look, you had resisted the calls for an impeachment inquiry 
into President Trump for quite some time. And you came around sure. a couple of weeks ago saying that you supported an impeachment inquiry, but not necessarily committing to voting for impeachment itself. We've now had a lot of new evidence. Uh, just yesterday, Ambassador Taylor's statement, the statements from Mulvaney last sure. week and others. Where are you right now? So in the same place, fully supporting this impeachment inquiry, you know, we need to take a step back and look at what this process actually is. This is a fact-finding process, there's no doubt. This is also a trust-building exercise, though, with the American people. And for someone to come out and say, I've already arrived at my conclusion, but we should proceed with this investigation, doesn't make any sense whatsoever in my book, okay? We, this testimony that you're referring to from yesterday is beyond alarming, Okay, the whistleblower report, beyond alarming, backed up by credible allegations, the transcripts, so on and so forth, all incredibly alarming, warranting an impeachment inquiry. But for the American people to believe in this process as well, I don't think that we should be jumping to conclusions. We should also not be celebrating this. Um, This is not a, a moment for victory lap. This is a solemn moment talking about potentially impeaching the president of the United States. In addition to that, we, of course, should be transitioning sooner rather than later to public hearings. Let me just follow up on what you said about this being not just a fact-finding exercise, but a trust-building exercise. Building trust these days in our politics is pretty tough. And you represent a district that Donald Trump won overwhelmingly. Yeah, he won by more Um, than he won Texas. So take that, Beto. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and our politics are totally tribal. Uh, these days. How do you actually build trust with your constituents? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating question, and it's something that Democrats are horrible at. Because the truth of the matter is, if you run in a district like mine, highest rate of unionization of any district in the country, filled with cops, firemen, teachers, nurses, first responders, people who are awfully patriotic, but realize the importance of government. These aren't folks who are saying, get government out of my back pocket. And in fact, if you ran tried and true classic blue-collar Democratic policies, pro-infrastructure, pro-union, pro-public health, pro-both supporting our troops while also ending forever wars, pro-protecting Social Security and Medicare, those policies in a district like mine would win 80% of the vote. But you hit the nail on the head. It's often the Democratic Party and those who lead it that people in a district like mine do not trust. So the first thing is, is that you should engage in a perpetual campaign. I think that's a good thing. You should always be out there, always at the Little League game, always at the parade, meeting people, getting to know them, not just at town hall, but meeting them where they are. An interesting question people often ask me is, Max, what policies did you run on? While policies are incredibly important, if it were that easy to earn people's trust, hey, you know, an ounce of health care, a couple of doses in infrastructure, and you should be on board with us, then I, I truly believe that Democrats especially when you juxtapose their policy agenda with a Republican policy agenda that centers around tax cuts for the wealthiest amongst us, Democrats will win the vast majority of races. So trust building. Well, well, why don't, sorry, but why don't they trust, why don't your constituents trust Democrats and are they right uh, in a lot of ways not to trust them? It's certainly, it's a complicated question. Part of it is, is that the Democratic Party has at times been overtaken by an elitist attitude that centers around the what's the matter with Kansas notion of uh, why, why don't they? Why are they so stupid that they don't vote according to their economic self-interest? Mm-hmm. You, know, you hear it over and mm-hmm. over and mm-hmm. over again, especially amongst donors, especially amongst donors, mm-hmm. when really the question should be, why don't they trust us? Now, I, I can't give you the five-step process towards, towards building trust. That doesn't work in a relationship. Um, that also doesn't work with voters. But it, it is about investing in time, getting to know people. And caring about what they care about as well. It also means, though, that we stop treating specific communities that are traditional democratic communities, unions, communities of color, as fully owned subsidiaries, only talking to them in 30 days prior to an election. Uh, But, you know, I I do want to bring it back. And this is I can't believe I'm saying this. I want to bring it back to impeachment. (laughs) So often what people people in my district will say in response to this very issue is one of two things, both of which I find very interesting because they uh, point to the problem in this town. The first is they say, well, Max, look, everybody's corrupt. Okay, you're just going after Donald Trump, but everybody's corrupt. Everybody does this, this type of stuff where you're leveraging the power of the state to advance Mm -hmm. your own self-interest. This happens all the time. And that type of cynicism we cannot ignore. 
We shouldn't degrade it as just that of something that a deplorable would say. We actually have to focus on the fact that there, for generations in this town, it has been inundated with transactional politics, inundated with a culture of corruption that leads to a deep cynicism amongst the American people. The second thing that people will often say is, look, this is a witch hunt. You were going after him from day one. And for that point, I do think that the trajectory that I've taken on this issue is important. Okay, There was a point in time not very, too, not very long ago where I said, look, with the facts that we have today, I do not think impeachment is the, an impeachment inquiry is the correct road to go on. But that doesn't mean that when new facts present themselves that we shouldn't consider an impeachment inquiry. There are members of my party who were on board of impeachment before they got sworn in. What was the – well, yeah. and, and there were also Republicans though. There remain the majority of the Republican caucus who would not even consider impeachment because there's an R next to this president's Mm -hmm. name. Both of them are wrong. And the people in my district and districts just like it across the country are correct to point that out. So let's look at the way the process is unfolding right now, where we have Chairman Schiff conducting these closed-door depositions. Schiff, who, although he didn't support impeachment, has sort of taken on a prosecutorial tone from the get-go on Russia and now this. You know, you have Chairman Nadler, who was supporting impeachment based on Russia before the Ukraine scandal ever erupted. You know, how do you feel about the way the process is working right now? So, and and do the Republicans have a point that this testimony should all be so, in so for, public? First of, all, first of all, brother, let's talk about politics one-on-one. Right. Okay. And the Republican Party right now, as led by the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, practice the JV version of this art. What you do when you are scared of the facts... So you do one of two things. You talk about the process, and then you talk about whoever's leading the effort. We could have done any process that they had chosen. We could have also selected Mother Teresa to lead this inquiry, and I guarantee you they would still be parroting the same exact talking points because what this is about is this is about deflection. This is about trying to distract the American people so they distrust this process to the point that they do not even believe in facts. When they were given, this Republican Party, the opportunity to rise above party, to show that they have a dedication to the Constitution, not to their own political party, that allegiance to the Constitution, not allegiance to politics is what matters. They are choosing to take the route that in my book is not patriotic. And that is absolutely wrong. So what I'm not going to do here is I'm not going to entertain this notion that we should be doing anything but getting to the bottom of these facts in both a private setting to start. And as I said at the beginning of this conversation, that we should be transitioning to a public hearings sooner rather than later. When? Well, look, that, that is relatively semantics, okay? And what, what I'm saying is as soon as possible, right. okay? As soon as possible, we should be transitioning to a public hearing. But to, and that's and you, you're not you. I don't know how you could get much more out of me than that. Yeah, well, yeah. Let, let me just you know to, to build trust uh, with the American people to bring them along as I think you would like to do. There may be nothing more important than this process, and it goes beyond these closed door depositions and then having public hearings. It's also the rhetoric that the Democrats who are leading this process use. Just give us a sense of how you think your colleagues who are running this process ought to do it. Sure, sure. So look, this is very very simple, man. This is checkers, not chess. First, this is a sad day for this country. Sad, sad day. I did not come to Washington, D.C. to impeach the President of the United States. And guess what? Nothing would make me happier than to find out that the President of the United States is not guilty of an impeachable offense. Also, nothing would make me happier than to find out that the Republican leadership are, are currently not mindless sycophants. So that's the first thing here. The second thing is, is that we are not jumping to any conclusions. This is an investigation. This is an inquiry. And we are looking to rise above politics. And then thirdly, while this is a national security issue, of course, we're talking about Ukraine and the, its geopolitical significance as it relates to Russia. We are also talking about the issue of anti-corruption here. Donald Trump ran on the very notion of draining the swamp. In 2018, Democrats such as myself ran on the same thing. and We followed up that rhetoric with with H.R. 1, the most substantive piece of anti-corruption legislation passed in the halls of Congress in multiple generations that has moved on to languish in Mitch McConnell's 
graveyard. Remind us so, what that was. Well, H.R. 1 was, a, you know, a basket of multiple anti-corruption and pro-democracy legislative um, policy proposals, public financing of elections, mm-hmm. anti-gerrymandering, um, and, and many, many more. But what's fascinating is we followed up on our rhetoric from 2018. All Donald Trump has potentially done here is while he talked about draining the swamp, it, it appears that he may have become of the swamp, may have worked to promote the swamp, expand the swamp. Those points, I think, are absolutely critical for the Democratic Party to be making day in and day out. Let me just drill down on the evidence that flipped you on this. Walk us through exactly the moment when you changed so, your position so let, on so you didn't me, support let, let impeachment. Well, let, let, what let me, was it? What alarmed you the most? Well, so let's look at what happened here, right? right. When the, these initial allegations were alarming, when you, when you look at what the Washington Post was reporting, and I, I came out and said, look, options need, need to, all options need to be on the table. We need to get to the bottom of this. Whistleblower report comes out. Transcript comes out. And the same thing, I say the same thing. We have to get to the bottom of this. What pushed me, though, even further, was it was clear that there was unadulterated deflection and, and obstruction being practiced by this administration. Some may be surprised at that. Most others probably not. Uh, Secretary of State Pompeo says, I will not allow those working in my department to speak with or work with this committee. Uh, Rudy Giuliani threatens to sue the Intelligence Committee. The Republican Party starts using really horrific rhetoric around Chairman Schiff. And then lastly, the president says we're, you know, and his administration that we are rejecting or not following through on any subpoenas. And that did push me to the point that I did believe that this needed to be elevated to that of an impeachment inquiry. You know, the larger point, though, as well, when I made this announcement is that we cannot allow anything to also to distract us from getting down to the issues. I, I, I made this announcement at a commuting town hall where people in my district are deeply frustrated by the fact that they're commuting two hours each way to work, less time to spend with their families, deeply frustrated by skyrocketing drug prices, crumbling infrastructure. You all have heard this before. But what's fascinating to me is that the Republican Party right now is pushing ads throughout the country saying Democrats want to investigate, do not want to legislate. Now, we have far more legislation to get done. We got to get something done around drug prices. We got to get something done around infrastructure. But the notion that before the initiation of this impeachment inquiry, somehow Congress was this panacea for legislation and bipartisanship. Not at all the case. We were passing things over and over and over again but, but, that were dying in Mitch look, McConnell's legislative grave. On the evidence itself, the question that seemed on the table was, was there a quid pro quo between the president's demand for these investigations by the U- Ukrainians in exchange for releasing the I don't think that's the question. Aid? No, that is, that is the, the wrong question. What is the right question? So there, there's three questions here that are the most important. First question. In what way, shape, and form did the President of the United States potentially use the apparatus of the state to advance his own self-interest? That's the first question. Second question, in what way, shape, and form did the President of the United States use Rudy Giuliani as a shadow Secretary of State? Third question, why, when the President of the United States had the opportunity to speak with the Ukrainian president, why, when he had the opportunity to discuss anything with him, geopolitics, economic development, diplomacy, you name it. Why did he choose to discuss a server, a myth of a server, and the Biden family? That is really what so is you, most significant. So you would have come out in favor of the impeachment inquiry even if there was not evidence but I, I, of a I'm quid pro quo. I'm not going to entertain it. You, you all know that I'm not going to entertain hypotheticals here. You guys have been at this for, for far mm-hmm. longer than that. But what the key here to understand here, and this is why I frame this as an anti-corruption issue, is the president of the United States potentially, with the experience expansive arm of the state at his disposal. Utilize that not to advance America's interests. Because keep in mind, right, when you're negotiating with a foreign government, the idea of using a quid pro quo to advance America's interests is actually what you're supposed to be doing. We need more of that in this country. We need more of that. But 
It is advancing your own potential self-interest. That is the problem. And it's fascinating to me that when people in my district consider that as an issue, the response is, well, doesn't everybody do it? And that's why we should be coupling this effort with the most expansive anti-corruption agenda in the history of the United States. Well, I wanted to ask you about your constituents for a second, because you've made this shift based on these new revelations uh, about Ukraine and all of the things that you've just laid out. And I know it's early days. It's only been a little while since you've come out in support of the inquiry. But what are you seeing among your constituents? Are you seeing that they're making the same shift that you are? Are you seeing that they are seeing this with the kind of gravity that you clearly have begun to see it? It is too early to tell. You could do anything in this country. Some people are going to be upset with you. Some people would be happy. Some people are going to be oblivious to the issues that are, that are going on, more concerned, rightfully so, with their personal lives and their professional pursuits and their community. But what I believe on a high level is that people want very broad-based things from their elected officials. They want them to show integrity. They want them to do what they think is right irrespective of the political consequences, short-term and long-term. They want them to work hard. They don't want them to be bought and paid for, and they don't want them to have allegiance to anything but the Constitution and the United States of America. Now, I've sworn an oath to the Constitution twice in my life. Once when I enlisted in the military nearly 10 years ago, and once earlier this year when I became a United States congressman. did not swear an oath to party. I did not swear an oath to my next election. I did not swear an oath to politics. And that is what I am going to do. So I'm confident that the people of my district are extraordinarily smart. And I'm confident that they're going to make the right decision come election day. But I'm not thinking about that right now. I'm just thinking about how I can do my damn job. Have you gotten any blowback? Like I said, some people are upset, of course. Of course. Some people are elated. But the point is here is that what we're not going to do is we're not going to just surf the waves of public opinion and allow that to dictate our course of action. We are seeking to do what is right. We are not seeking to be politically motivated. And beyond that, we are always seeking to return back to the tried and true kitchen table issues that the American people are concerned with. You are also now being challenged in both the general and I think in the primary as well? Is there, do you have a primary yeah, challenge? You, know, um, we're, you worried at all so about I, that? So let, let's talk some politics. Good. <laughs> so I, I have been, uh, I received a primary challenger, I think about four months ago, and I've been desperately trying to find a socialist to run against me. <laughs> desperately. I've already publicly pledged. Can't I'm you going, go to AOC and say, uh, can you I mean, find somebody? I, I'm, I'm to, trying. I'm yeah. trying. Don't <laughs> you know anyone? I'm, I will subsidize their move to Staten Island. So look, I'm, I'm planning to max out to my primary opponent, I'm going to do everything possible to help him get on the ballot so that is I can... Is he a socialist? He's a tried and true socialist. Okay. Um, and I'm going to beat him by at least 30 points. But democracy is a beautiful thing here. Now, in the general election, I got my first challenger six days after I got sworn in at the height of a government shutdown. So I'm not sure exactly what I did wrong in those first five days. But now she has a competitive primary with Joey Salads of YouTube fame, uh, neo-Nazi, peed in his mouth, made fun of the disabled. But we'll see who emerges out of that primary. Um <laughs> Sounds like that's wait, the person you, you know, want. To okay, wait, yeah, yeah. Joey uh, Salads, Joey, Joey, Joey Salads, um, yeah, Joey Saladino, and so we'll we'll see we'll see what happens oh, there in that in that Staten Island. Island. Yeah. Uh, well, look, we'll see what happens there in that very competitive Republican primary. But no one thought that I could win my in my last election. Keep that in mind to include pundits just like yourself. A district that Donald Trump won by more than he won Texas. I was never considered a top fifty. Candidate, I won by seven points, a wider margin than most other frontline candidates. So we're going to beat them by such a wide margin that it's going to be incredibly embarrassing for them, and they're not going to try to challenge us again. Although I did see that that Barack Obama won Staten Island in 2012. That surprised me. Yes, he did. Not in 08. It's one of the few districts in the country that McCain won in 08 and Barack Obama won in 12. Um, But you will be running during a presidential election year. Um, yeah, you guys are really just hitting on these these yeah. off off topic uh, agenda items. Who, Unbelievable, really um, solid research team you got. Who's your candidate? <laughs> um, I don't look. I don't have a candidate right now. I'm on strike. I'm not talking about the presidential until 2020. 
it's unbelievable how long this process goes, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it it is absolutely, absolutely incredible. But but there's a lot of nervousness in the moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Guys, don't worry. I'm not going to do the classic, I'm focused on this, I don't want to talk. I'm not going to bullshit you. Let's play ball here. So it is clear that when you look at this Democratic primary, these candidates, right? They are focused, hyper-focused on, first of all, the Twitter sphere which is really pissing me off because that is representative of, you know, less than or 10% or so of the primary electorate, people that tweet each and every day. But at times they appear obsessed with it, which is, you know, upsetting. I have no problem with people who believe whatever they say they believe. Like, that's good. Have some bold ideas. Let's have a solid debate. But what I do have a problem with is when you try to play both sides. And think about this. I'm not going to name names, right? We're not going to make this that sexy. But I have a problem when people sign on to Medicare for All, and then when they say, are you in favor of abolishing private health care, they don't raise their hand. That's an issue for me. If you signed on to Pramila Jayapal's legislation, if you signed on to Bernie Sanders' legislation, you want to abolish private health insurance. And let's have a solid debate in the Democratic Party. But all the while, while we're having this debate, let's keep a hyper focus on our shared values, what we are united by is that we want to pursue universal health care coverage. That, is, that has got to be the goal. We have got to achieve it. We are united by the, the desire for a truly awe-inspiring multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill. We're united by the need for expansive anti-corruption efforts. We're united by a desire to shore up Social Security. You know, so this notion that the Democratic Party in the primary too, shouldn't be the party of intellectual diversity is crazy to me. We cannot be the party of litmus tests. We cannot be the party of purity tests. Why do I know that? That's what the Republican Party looks like. Blindly united by a desire to give away massive amounts of money to the wealthiest amongst us. I don't want us to look like that. But look, right now there is incredible unease among your fellow Democrats about the field. Like who? Uh, I'm divulging everything. Give me names. Who's who's nervous? Who are your sources? (laughs) I'm just, all you have to do is read the coverage over the last few So first of all. Particularly since the last debate. First of all, hold on. Okay, all right. Here, you You know, um, Elizabeth Warren uh, is certainly one of the two front runners right now. She does support Medicare for all and taking away private insurance. And she had a tough time asking about whether that was going to require raising taxes in order to do so on middle class Americans. That was in the debate last week. Uh, And Joe Biden, who seems to be struggling, who has been nicked. Do you share the unease when you look at the field you see right now? And if so, what do you want to do about it? First of all, I think I very clearly expressed where I lie on the ideological spectrum, the policies that I believe in, as well as the policies that I think, and the ways in which you message them. That I think will win elections, both at the congressional level and the national level. But what's fascinating to me is that if we were having a discussion at the same point in 2015, Mm -hmm. all of that unease would never, no one felt that, right? There was this sense that we got this in the bag, we're good to go, no one was nervous in the, the elitist donor circles or otherwise, and we shit the bed. So this no like the, yes this is a disruptive this is a diverse this is an unpredictable process that is usually when the democratic party gets it right versus when we uh, you know anoint someone 13 14 months out here though the here's the central question that i think that all of our politics should revolve around if we want to win this presidential election and that central question is is whose side are you on Are you on the side of special interests? Are you on the side of the pharmaceutical companies who, for all intents and purposes, made billions as drug dealers, like the Sackler family? Are you on the side of the hardworking union members whose numbers we should double in the next 20 years? Are you on the side of the earth and our children as we try to address this issue of climate change? Or are you on the side of lobbyists, corporate PACs, and the wealthiest amongst us? When you present it as that... Okay, you're not just going to win a Democratic primary. You're also going to win those places that believe Donald Trump when he said that I want to do something to use the apparatus of the state to help you. That's what he ran on in so many ways. He co-opted a Democratic populist agenda or at least tenants of it. That's what our politics should be based around. And then the elections are going to be the easy part. Um, are you um, worried that Trump will be reelected? Of course, look, the, the, mm-hmm. this idea that somehow you wouldn't be thinking about that or wouldn't think that that's a possibility 
Every every Democrat should, of course, know that this is an election and that it could go either way. Mm-hmm. And we have to take this incredibly seriously. Of course, 13, mm-hmm. 14 months out. If anyone said that they're not that they're like that we have it in the bag, they're naive, they're incompetent, they're stupid, they're something. But they shouldn't hold a leadership position in the Democratic Party. So, but let's get to business. Let's get to business and let's actually center our politics around a centrist populist uh, agenda that focuses on the question of who's Saudi. There's been talk of others possibly thinking about getting into the race. Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor, uh, Hillary Clinton is left. seems to be leaving the door open. Um, Do you want to see either of those two or others get in? Look, God bless him. Let's see. Let's see what happens. I think some people are looking to just stay relevant. Others may be thinking about it. We're getting to that point where it might be too late. Uh, yeah. For folks to jump in. But, man, politics is a beautiful thing. I'm not constitutionally allowed to run for president. I'm too young. But maybe you don't want me to spice <laughs> things up a little bit? Yeah. Here, to, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> throw your hat in. And, uh, <laughs> um, so, wait, 2024? 20, 2024. All right. You heard it here on Skullduggery. All right. So, wait. <laughs> AOC is still younger than you, right? Yeah, you're, I'm the youngest male. She's the youngest you're, female, you're, okay. I believe. Yeah. You know, speaking of elections and timetables, as this continues, and it does look like the impeachment process is dragging on longer than some people wanted it to because of the evidence that seems to be emerging, there's inevitably going to be, if this goes into you know late December, early sure. January, the argument, why don't we just let the voters decide this how would you answer so, that so, question you know i think that the the critical thing here is so someone asked me the other day max what's the timetable on this and the second that you subject a political calculus to a timetable around something as serious as an impeachment inquiry i think you're making a really faulty step a real big mistake here this is the second most serious thing i could be doing what's as an elected what's the first the, the first is the vote to declare war and send mm-hmm. soldiers to combat mm-hmm. Second most serious thing. So we're not going to say, look, that second most serious thing is, is something that you stop considering during 25 percent of a presidential, you know, of a presidential term here. I am very conscious, though, of the fact that elections are are important here. And we certainly have to be engaged in a disciplined process, a disciplined process that focuses around this issue of Ukraine, um, the central questions that I brought up earlier the central questions that I brought up earlier, and I uh, move as quickly as possible to public hearings so we can continue to focus on that trust-building process as well. Well, it, it certainly looks like uh, you're going to have to cast a vote uh, to impeach or, or not impeach, and uh, we are going to be looking forward to talking to you between now and then as this process unfolds. Absolutely. And so wait, thank wait, you so got, much for— wait, got, That was a segue. Well, okay, he wants to I'm close gonna, it out, man. Goddamn producers telling that me bad. that we got to go. I guess that was that one bad, man. Let's question. go one more. One more question. We did, are you guys known. didn't even let me do, like, the commercial break thing. <laughs> no, no. We don't, we don't do commercial <laughs> you don't do this. Wait. <laughs> what, do you, right. what will you be sponsoring? It'll be Pat and Joe's, Joe and Pat's Pizza? You guys are probably doing some, like, fucking new underwear company, like Pod Save America. Yeah. We do have a balding ad that runs yeah. on, you know. That was uh, offensive. I'm just, you know, it's that was offensive. We actually you do. got a great head of this hair, guy, though. Oh, my God. Look at that all thing. Right. All right. We're known for asking tough questions. We like to put people on the spot. You're from Staten Island. What's the best pizza place in Staten Island? I told you, man. Don't fuck with me, all right? <laughs> this was going so, so you're well. Ducking. You're don't ducking. Get, don't go. Don't, 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 don't do not fuck right. with me, all right? Well, I'm all right. A- <laughs> I'm a journalist with a lot of conviction, and I'm just going to have to go with Joe and Pat. Uh, and plus, my daughters love right, it, too. This interview's over. You guys are <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> Congressman, <laughs> thanks for joining us. We are now joined by Jack Goldsmith, professor of law at Harvard Law School, and the author of a fascinating new book we'll be talking on an, about on another episode of Skullduggery, Buried Treasure in Hoffa's Shadow. Today, we're going to talk about Trump and um, the impeachment process going on. Jack, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. You're a constitutional law guy, and you saw the letter that Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, mm-hmm. wrote to the House just saying, basically, fuck off. We're not going to 
cooperate with anything you're doing. This is an illegitimate impeachment process. As a scholar of constitutional law, what did you make of the White House counsel's letter? So the legal claims in the White House counsel's letter I thought were groundless, were meritless. I mean, the idea that the Congress is doing something inappropriate in the way in investigating Trump through an impeachment lens for what for the Ukraine matter and for that matter, he could be doing it for a lot of other things. The idea that that's inappropriate or unconstitutional, as he said, is, I think, just nonsense. There, It is true that, although this doesn't rise to a constitutional level, as he said, it is true that the procedures Trump is receiving are somewhat less favorable to date than Clinton and Nixon received. I actually think that's a big mistake because I think it's going to undermine the legitimacy of what they end up doing, at least to some degree. But the legal arguments – but the Constitution doesn't require any particular process. It's completely silent on that. So to dress that up into constitutional claims and illegitimate inquiries and unconstitutional inquiries, I viewed that letter as a political document designed to kind of shape the political atmosphere and probably designed mostly for his base. Well, ultimately, if if impeachment is a political process itself, then is it wrong to provide a political response? Uh, I, I, I don't know if it's wrong to provide it. I don't think it's wrong. Everyone in impeachment, and this is not the first time this has happened, views impeachment through a political lens. And you know much more about the Clinton uh, impeachment than I do, but... They view that through a political lens, and they weren't so overt in making it a White House overt lead, Mm -hmm. but they tried to shape the political atmosphere. Every president in every White House tries to shape the political atmosphere. What was strange was using the letterhead of the White House counsel and making legal arguments that just were clearly exaggerated. Do you think that's damaging uh, in the long term? to the reputation of government lawyers when you dress up political arguments as as legal arguments? Well, to be clear, it's not the first time that White House or government (laughs) lawyers have dressed up (laughs) political arguments as legal arguments. Really? Really? (laughs) I'm shocked. Uh, I'm sorry to disabuse you, but that's not the first time. Former assistant attorney general. I said White House lawyers, not Justice Department. (laughs) I said White House lawyers, not Justice Department. But, But look. I don't. I can't assess that. I don't know what it's going to do to any. The, all the institutions in Washington right now, their legitimacy and reputation in before variance audiences are so fraught that it's, I mean, it's just impossible to assess. Look, just the basics right now of the evidence as it's unfolded in the Ukrainian scandal, which is that the president uh, did make this request of the president of Ukraine to investigate the Bidens and um, investigate uh, 2016 interference in the election by the Ukrainians, something that was clearly done for his political benefit, uh, and holding up $391 million in military aid for the Ukrainians to fight Russian aggression while he's making that request. Is that on its face impeachable to you? Yes. I mean, the constitutional standard of high crimes and misdemeanors, it's its really less of a strict legal standard than a standard about abuse of office and defiance or, or corruption of the public trust mm-hmm. in a very serious and way. And that's the way it's been viewed since the beginning. That's been the basis for it in other impeachment contexts. And there's no doubt that abusing the office and and really lying about it later, abusing the office for personal gain in an election. And by the way, just set aside the impeachment for a second. How crazy is it that he did this just after he's been through the whole Mueller investigation for something almost exactly analogous, scraped through by by the skin of his teeth there and absolutely learned nothing from it at all and did something that basically is analogous to what Mueller was looking for and got caught red-handed. It's a clear it's a clear case for an impeachable offense. And that's not a hard question. Can I just ask you, beyond uh, your legal judgment as to whether this is impeachable, do you think that it is important, given the conduct of this president, given uh, all of the things, the totality of what he's done, not just Ukraine, do you think it is important that Congress impeach uh, Donald Trump? So I'm of two minds about this. That's a judgment that I would say is not purely a constitutional. There's a diff- scholars differ about whether Congress has a duty to impeach a president for impeachable offenses. I'm ha- happy to see Congress finally exercising its prerogatives without being afraid to do so for the first time in a very long time. It took them a lot of wind up. They tried to get Mueller to do their work for them. Finally, they seem to have the courage 
The House seems to have the courage of its convictions. I think it's really bad. We're in a very bad, fraught situation in this country right now, obviously. The country is divided like it hasn't been in a long time. And I worry, given the stakes and given what almost half the country sees as a two-and-a-half, three-year effort to remove the president illegitimately, I would rather see Trump go through an election than through impeachment. I just think that there's a greater likelihood of political settlement if that happens. I'm not saying it's a high likelihood. I think if he's removed by impeachment, it's going to prolong the country's suffering. That said, I can't criticize Congress for going forth because for going forward because he's clearly acted in a way that warrants impeachment. You know, you are, are, I know, a fan of contrarian arguments, so I'm going to throw one at you. You mentioned that abuse of office, such as we've seen in the Ukrainian matter, is clearly impeachable. But as a matter of historical precedent, we've had three impeachments in this country, Mm -hmm. presidential impeachments, Andrew Johnson, uh, Nixon, and Clinton. Each one was about a violation of law with Andrew Johnson, Tenure of Office Act, with Nixon uh, obstructing a criminal investigation into a burglary by his campaign committee and with Clinton perjury. In this case, is there a violation of a potential violation of law by the president? So let me say a couple of things about that. I actually have a very long and complicated post up today on Lawfare trying to that follows up on an earlier post trying to figure out whether the delay in spending the monies violated these extremely complicated appropriation statutes and the like. And you were telling us you didn't have anything to say about it. The answer okay. is yeah. it's extremely complicated, but probably there was actually a DOD fund and a State Department fund. The State Department delay was probably lawful and the DOD one was probably not lawful. Yeah. So there's a technical violation of appropriation law there. Although they released the money they in September. They eventually right? released the money before the end of the fiscal year, and Mulvaney noted that in his press conference last week. But as we explained today, that's probably not the end of the legal issues. So there's probably a legal violation there. It's not clear that there's any other legal violation unless you go to 40,000-foot level and say he violated his oath of office, which is a, a tricky argument to make. Extortion or bribery? It's That gets... I don't. It's not clear that that's what this was. It's not clear that those statutes apply to the president. The bribery statute probably does. Maybe, possibly. Campaign finance violation. Possibly. I haven't looked at those. I can't say. But let me correct. Let me contest mm-hmm. you on one thing. So I can't go back. I can't. I, I meant to do this before I came on this mm-hmm. podcast, and I ran out of time. I wanted. I wanted to go back and look at the articles of impeachment for the three that you mentioned. I know it's true, and it's settled through practice that. You do not have to have a violation of law for there to be an impeachable offense. I'm pretty sure that not I'm, – I'm confident that not every – I'm pretty confident. I, this is what I wanted to check before I came on, that not every one of the articles of impeachment against those three presidents involved criminal violations. So you talk about obstruction of justice. It wasn't necessarily the case that that meant – violated the obstruction well, of justice it, 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 The obstruction with Nixon's case did involve obstructing the criminal investigation know, but it's into a, the Watergate program. So that's, that's a violation of law. Well, right? not necessarily. There's a technical question whether the, and I've argued that it doesn't, the obstruction of justice statute applies to the president without a clear statement from Congress. You're looking at me like I'm crazy, which is the way most people looked at me, but I'm pretty sure the argument's right. I think that the, you know, look, the Supreme Court uh, ruled he had to turn the tapes over. They didn't rule that he obstructed justice. They ruled that he couldn't invoke executive privilege to resist a subpoena. Completely different Wasn't that Bill Barr's argument in the memo that he sent? I think Barr's argument was basically right. The president can't obstruct justice. No, I didn't say say that. I said paying hush money to witnesses? That would be a harder case because the well, argument is okay, was involved, Obstru- obstructing a, that's what the March, a proceeding. The 1973 that's, conversation so let, let, was all about. Let, 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 me, let me try to be clear about what I'm saying. Yeah. There's a technical legal question about whether, and it's not been resolved, and under the law of the Justice Department and the executive branch, there's a technical legal question whether the obstruction of justice criminal statutes, which don't mention the president by name, can apply to the president, absent a plain statement from Congress. I'm pretty sure that's right under executive branch law. I'm not saying that Congress couldn't do it if it wanted to. So, And it's always been ambiguous, and i actually written about this as well. It's always been ambiguous whether whether the 
articles of impeachment for obstructing justice meant that he violated the criminal law or is just talking more colloquially. Clearly, for example, Trump was trying to obstruct justice even in, in the Mueller stuff, mm-hmm. even if he didn't technically violate the obstruction of justice statutes. Yeah. I'm just trying to – but how did we get here? I'm trying to make the point that you don't have to violate criminal law. It, this is pretty subtle. You do not have to violate a criminal law to have an impeachable offense. So I don't think that we should get hung up on whether, as some people are getting hung up, on whether the Ukraine matter technically violated some law. People are scurrying around trying to fit the facts to some law. And I think that that's a mistake. That's not I, I the mean, way. I, I guess the argument would be if it's a broad abuse of office, you know, whether that's enough, given the historical practice. Because, you know, as I said, you know, criminality was a part of the discussion and uh, evidence in all three of those cases. It was. That these were criminal violations. It was, but I'm just telling right. you that's not a requirement of it's impeachable offense that it be a, a criminal violation. That's pretty settled. And I understand politically why it helps. Mm-hmm. But when I say abuse of office, that doesn't mean I mean, that's too loose a standard. And it's a political legal judgment as to whether it rises to the seriousness and to the kind of uh, abuse of really state power to warrant impeachment, but this is uh, an easy case. Why, why you? Why? No, no, no. I'm just easy case to make that the president should be impeached based on the evidence that we have. It's an easy case to make that it's something that warrants impeachment. Yes, Jack, you were saying before that one of the reasons that uh, you might be ambivalent about impeachment is because uh, these are wrenching times for the republic, and uh, we're so polarized. Um, there's so much tension in the body politic uh, that uh, that might not be the best way to go forward. Part of the reason for this is that we have a president who, on a daily basis, violates norms and traditions um, of, of the presidency. But there are a lot of people these days, maybe as a reaction to that, who are also uh, violating certain norms and traditions. And what I'm thinking about are people who at high levels of government, cabinet members, the head of the FBI, the head of the CIA, some of whom served under President Trump, who are willing to go on cable television, accuse the president of criminality, write op-ed pieces, very harsh rhetoric. How do you, as someone who served at high levels in government and had strong feelings about the conduct and legal judgments of some of your colleagues, how do you feel about, about this? So I don't begrudge any of them saying whatever they want about Trump, and they have every reason to be, the people you're talking about have every reason to be angry with him. But I also want to say that, and I've been saying this for a long time, that I think one of the corrosive things that Trump has done is that in violating norms, he's instigated others in response to him to violate norms. And I do think in the aggregate that having you know uniformly former senior officials appear nightly to come out on one side just criticizing the president, whether it's justified or not, and I think that almost everything they say is justified – I think it does have the effect, and, and it was something that used to not be done, like a lot of other things that used to not be done in, into the presidency in response to Trump, leaking of FISA information, for example, that never has ever happened before, FISA intercept information. I do think it has a corrosive effect because it plays into, in a very serious way, the deep state rhetoric. Now, again, it's kind of a collective action problem because I don't begrudge any one of these people – there are a few that I've criticized. I think I think Brennan crossed the line a few a few times in getting out of his lane and basically as the former CIA director criticizing Trump's trade policy and foreign policy and all and the like. But I don't begrudge any of them going on and criticizing the president, and they have good reason to. But I do think that the aggregate consequence is to damage those institutions' credibility because it makes it seem like to half the country. Half the country or a little bit more than half the country loves it, cheering cheering them on. on. But for 40-some-odd percent of the country, it's just confirming evidence of the deep deep state conspiracy. Uh, You referenced the Mueller investigation before. Mueller famously chose not to reach a judgment about whether the president obstructed justice in the Russia investigation because of the Office of Legal Counsel opinion that a president cannot be indicted as a sitting president. Uh, As a former head of the Office of Legal Counsel under the George W. Bush administration, what did you make of Mueller's decision there? I didn't like it because for a 
for a bunch of reasons. I think it wasn't consistent. It wasn't the best reading of the special counsel regulations for a couple of reasons. It the special counsel regulations contemplated a report explaining prosecution or declination. That was what the legislative history contemplated that the report would be about. And by not doing one of those two things, which the regulation contemplated, Mueller was able to do something else the regulations didn't want to allow without reaching a conclusion. That was exactly the kind of thing to, to make the second point that when they were writing the special counsel regulations in the 1990s, they wanted to avoid. They, they got rid of the impeachment report. They said that that long analysis of possible criminality was not fair to the targets, and we don't want that. So that's the second thing that he did. And then the third thing, what he really did by, by not making a prosecution decision, he took away the authority of the attorney general, which the regulations specify is the person who has authority for the final decision but, but to make a prosecution or declination decision. Now, Barr ended up saying we're not going to prosecute. But I, I'm not sure Mueller cared about that because he was able to get all this information out. It was pretty clearly an indirect impeachment report. I so mean, what, what should he have done? I mean, I think that the the right thing to have done was to – there's nothing in the OLC opinion that prevents you from – concluding that the president should be prosecuted. It just doesn't allow you to actually indict while he's in office. And that's pretty clearly what Barr thought he should have done if he believed that. He should have reached a decision. As Barr said, and I agree with him on this, the Department of Justice is not in the business of abstract legal discussions. We prosecute and we decline prosecutions. And by taking this middle ground, Mm -hmm. he was in effect doing an impeachment. He was reporting on what he found for the American people. And that is not what the special counsel regulations. So if you were the special counsel, what would you have done? With the evidence as so, Mueller the, the, my my views on this are very much out of the mainstream. I think that for reasons we were talking about a second ago, that most of those of the alleged of the ten of the of the ten factual circumstances in Volume Two, mm-hmm. most of those are not even possibly obstruction of justice. I don't even think he should have talked about that. I think he should have talked about the ones to the extent that there were some of those where Trump wasn't exercising an Article II power but was clearly doing something that would otherwise implicate the obstruction of justice statutes, I think he should have limited his analysis to that. And he should have uh, said that he should have reported that he discovered prosecutable offenses. And, and what happens at that point? I mean, isn't that if you can't indict? Nothing happens. But isn't that essentially a also a, a uh, an indirect uh, – Impeachment memo. I mean, if you say that publicly, then yeah, well, no. Well, first of all, he's, he's he he wouldn't have said it publicly. It would have been reported to Barr, and then Barr would have made a decision about whether that was right or wrong and what to disclose. And yes, it might have been viewed as a basis for impeachment. It would have been. I think a proper legal analysis would have been much shorter, and would have had many fewer uh, legal issues to discuss. And yes, I mean, I'm not saying, and I don't know what what Mueller, a guy I admire by the way, I don't know what his motivations were. But I'm just saying that he skirted several elements of the special counsel regulations to be able to produce a super long report that functioned, and this is the way Congress saw it, as basic, and this is the way Barr saw it, and the way the world saw it, as a basis for Congress to go forward to impeach. By the way, did you, do you agree with the uh, OLC memo? Yes. Um, did you ever have an opportunity when you were head of OLC to review it for no. its legal validity? No. I should. I was going to point out that you famously overturned previous OLC memos when you were at the Justice Department, particularly about warrantless wiretapping and um, and interrogation enhanced interrogation techniques. So OLC memos are not fixed in stone. They're not fixed in stone. There's a strong stare decisis presumption. Mm-hmm. One of the things I struggled with to go back to the early 2000s was what is the standard for overturning a prior decision? Do I, what is the standard for even revisiting it? And my view was that I wasn't supposed to unless I was asked to opine on its legality. And it, was, it wasn't until really they asked me to opine on the legality that I was able to do what I did. This is going to become much more political. Elizabeth Warren, if she wins, she's already said that she's going to choose a head of OLC. There's going to be a litmus test yeah. for the head of OLC to basically reverse those opinions. Yeah. How proper opinions, would that be? Not proper. Yeah. And opinions, by the way, that were the last of which was written by Randy Moss, who was an OLC head under Clinton, under who's, Clinton. An, who's an amazing lawyer and not any not in the bag for anyone. And uh, so those opinions have... We're in a political moment, and we're seeing those opinions through a political lens. Should those opinions apply to state prosecutions? 
I believe that they almost certainly will be viewed to apply to state prosecutions, yes. And um, by courts, if it ever happens. I I think that it will go to the Supreme Court if that's ever attempted. I don't think any of this is going to happen before the election. The White House has um, uh, refused to allow uh, Don McGahn, a crucial witness, uh, and others to testify before the House Judiciary Committee on the grounds that their conversations with the president are covered by executive privilege, in spite of the fact that they allowed McGahn to talk to the special counsel. So given that they permitted him to speak about privileged conversations they view as privileged, do they have a legitimate legal argument that uh, he should not be allowed to speak to Congress? So I I haven't looked at it closely enough to know. I haven't looked at what he said and haven't seen what it might or might not preclude. But let me say, so I can't answer that question. But I can say that the White House cannot enforce against former officials the notion that they can't testify about executive privilege. They can defend them if they refuse to. But in my judgment, McGahn is not bound by that as a former official in testifying. He might wish to, out of for whatever reason, to abide by the request, but they can't enforce that against him. Well, that is a, you know, a major point of contention right now between the um, Judiciary Committee uh, and the uh, and the White House, although it may all be overtaken by the uh, Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I when I when I testified in 2007 about after the terror presidency came out, Mm -hmm. they asked me not to speak about certain things and they were concerning the Bush White House. Yes. And they told me not to say anything about classified information. And they absolutely the criminal laws. I was not allowed to speak about classified information. But I don't believe that they that I'm, I'm not saying that former officials shouldn't abide by executive privilege rules. I'm saying they're not bound to. Hmm. Well, we could go on and this could start to sound like one of uh, Jack's uh, Harvard Law School seminars. Um, but we'll spare our Thank listeners you. Uh, <laughs> Thank that. You. But we do want to encourage them to listen to Jack's far more interesting observations about his book about Jimmy Hoffa, which will be on an upcoming episode. Uh, Jack, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thanks very much. Thanks to Congressman Max Rose and Harvard Law professor and former Justice Department official Jack Goldsmith for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.